If my voice doesn't make it through the whole hour, it's Mike Grimes' fault. He picks these songs that I tell myself in the mornings I'm supposed to preach, not to, uh, not to sing too loud, um, but it doesn't really seem to work. I, I get emotionally engaged in worship of our Lord. Um, if you're new to Omaha Bible Church, I'm uh, Mike Holloway. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Uh, our senior pastor, Pastor Pat Abendroth, has been uh, in Missouri near Branson, uh, teaching at an FCA leadership camp down there, talking about the truths of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and it's a privilege for him to do that. Uh, continue to pray for him. He's going to take a couple of weeks of vacation. So I'm going to be filling the pulpit uh, this week as well as the following two Sundays. And so as is often my habit, we're going to make a little journey into the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to talk about Samson. Um, I taught Samson in Sunday school about four months ago, but I had to take this, I had to take these four chapters, Judges 13 through 16, and squeeze them into one message, one Sunday school lesson. And I remember thinking as I was doing that, you know, there's four sermons here. Well, I'm going to squeeze them into three, but uh, I I just had to do this. So uh, Samson is a, a rollicking, wild, crazy, um, sinful, you know the story. Strong, uh, supernatural strength, miraculous strength. He's, he's really Israel's superman. But I got to tell you, he's a mess. He's a real mess. And there are many lessons for us to learn about Samson. Um, as I was thinking about Samson, I, I thought about how do you deal with your children when they get themselves in trouble or they're disobedient or they're rebellious? Well, when they're very young you, you, and they're just learning to crawl and explore, what do you do when they reach out their hand? You know, they've had their hands in their mouth. I've got grand, a grandchild right now who's in this stage. His hand's in his mouth. It's wet, and he goes, and he's crawling, and he reaches out for the electrical outlet, right? I mean, what a combination, right? Wet fingers, electrical outlets. Um, well, what do you do? You, you, you save him, right? You, you stop him. You, you don't let him go there. You protect him. Um, when they get a little older and they can play, play in the yard out front, um, the street's right there, and, and you can tell them all you want, don't go in the street, but guess what the attraction is? The street. And what do you do? You save them. You stop them. You, you rescue them, right? That's what happens. Well, when they get a little older and maybe a little rebellion comes, they want to do things and go places that you know can be dangerous for them, um, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's uh, teenage drivers, there's gangs, there's guns, there's, there's, there's serious stuff out there. What do you do? Well, you try to protect them. You, you try to not only talk to them, but give them appropriate boundaries and save them from the evils of the world that you know are out there. That's because you know rebellion and disobedience can be dangerous things. Physically dangerous, and as we will see today, spiritually dangerous as well. That's where the people of Israel are as we come to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. They're in a physically and spiritually dangerous place. It's been a long journey for Israel to get to where the book of Judges is. In, in the first chapters of Genesis, we, we see God who after the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden promises that a coming descendant of Eve would crush the head of Satan would crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people. 
Later in Genesis, God promises Abraham that he would have many descendants. And those descendants would be given a land and that through one of Abraham's descendants, all the people of the earth, not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That promise, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham. In Exodus, through Moses, God redeems and saves His people out of slavery in Egypt and graciously gives them the law of God, commandments for them to live by, for their protection and for their good. But they rebelled against God. They refused to enter the promised land. And it took 40 years for God to deal with their rebellion and their disobedience and get them ready to actually enter this promised land. So under the leadership of Joshua, God graciously brings Israel into the land He had promised to Abraham centuries before. It was a land of milk and honey, a land of good food where love for God and following His commandments would bring the blessing of many children and long life. It would be like a paradise, like the garden was meant to be. This is where God wanted to lead Israel all along. Back to a good land, a promised land, a garden paradise. But if they did not love Him and did not follow and obey Him from their heart, there would be curses. More curses similar to the ones that fell on Adam and Eve. And so after the death of Joshua, the disobedience of God's people grew and grew And that brings us to the book of Judges. Judges is a book that's kind of slimy and dirty. It's rough. It's a a kind of wild west of the Old Testament. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes is the key verse of the book. It can be a puzzling book. What we find there is a long-suffering God who despite the disobedience of His people, is faithful to His promise to deliver Israel, to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth through Israel. Despite God's people rejecting Him as King, despite their disobedience, despite their failure to obey, their half-hearted sacrifices, their rebellion against Him, God pursues them in Judges. God rescues them and saves them over and over and over again. There's a definite four-step pattern pattern going on in Judges. First, Israel rebels against and disobeys God. The second thing that happens is God raises up an enemy of Israel to punish His people for their sin, to drive them back to Him. In that pattern, the third thing that happens is Israel cries out to God for help in the midst of their anguish and their troubles. And then fourth, God brings forward a deliverer, a judge, a leader to defeat Israel's enemy and brings in a period of godly leadership and rule until the pattern starts all over again because inevitably Israel falls away. The book of Judges presents a cycle of sin and salvation that becomes a pattern for God's people here. The Israelites did what was right in their own eyes, leading to an ongoing cycle of sin, judgment, and deliverance. 
the judges God raises up or the deliverers brought temporary peace. But ultimately, Israel falls back into their idolatry and once again demonstrates their own need for salvation. With that as background, let's jump into the book and take a look at the Word of God. Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. We're going to start there this morning. Judges 2. I have three points in my message today. Point one, the relentless grace of our great God. Judges chapter 2, 11 to 16, and Judges 13, verses 1 to 7. Point two, God listens to the prayers of His children. Judges 13, verses 8 to 14, and point three is the splendor of God revealed in Judges 13, verses 15 to 25. So point one, the relentless grace of our great God. Judges chapter 2, verse 11 is where we're going to start. Follow along with me as we read about the spiritual condition that existed in Israel during the period of the Judges. Chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The Baals and the Ashtoreths are false gods. They are the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the land into which Israel moved, the gods that Israel warned, the god that Israel was warned about when they entered the land. They were to stay separate from the Canaanite people. As a matter of fact, they were to drive the Canaanite people out of the land. They didn't do it. They didn't do it and compromise crept in. The Baals and the Ashtoreths, the false gods of the Canaanites came to be the gods they worshipped and followed. Verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppress them. Take a look again at verse 14. The very first part of verse 14. Let's read that again. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now let's compare that to just two verses later in verse 16. The very first part of the verse. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them. What a juxtaposition. What an ironic contrast. Verse 14, we see the anger of the Lord against them. Verse 16, we see that God raised up judges who saved them. It's amazing, isn't it? 
It's astonishing. It's the incredible salvation the Lord brings to bear that we see in verse 16. Despite their disobedience, God continues to reach down to them and give them chance after chance after chance to return to Him. He condescends to them. The hand of God that is against them in verse 14 is somehow mysteriously for them in verse 16. The fundamental miracle of the Bible, of salvation in the Bible, is the God who rightly judges and casts us down to the ground for our sin is also the God who stoops down to lift us up and to save us from sin. Notice also verse 18. Notice what it is that moves the Lord to pity. What moves Him to action? It is their groaning. It is their crying out to the Lord. We hear Israel's cry first in Judges chapter 3, verse 9. Turn over that one chapter to Judges chapter 3, verse 9 and look at it with me. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. This crying out to the Lord is repeated five times in the book of Judges. And each time, the Lord responds by raising up a deliverer for Israel. The Lord raises up Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah from among the Israelites to provide deliverance for Israel from their enemies until Israel inevitably slips back once again into sin, rebellion, and idolatry. This crying out from Israel that the Lord responded to is not a cry of repentance. It is not a cry of changing their mind about their sin. Rather, it is a cry for help in times of trouble. It's a groaning in the midst of suffering. It's a cry for relief in the midst of their misery. It's a crying out like the groaning heard from the people of Israel when they were still in slavery in Egypt. Five times this happens in the book of Judges. Before we get to Judges chapter 13 and our introduction to the final judge, the last judge in the book of Judges to Samson. As we come to Judges 13 verses 1 to 5, keep in mind that we sometimes learn as much from what the Scripture doesn't say as from what it does. So please turn to Judges 13 and follow along as I read verses 1 to 5. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord, this is the pre-incarnate Christ here, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand 
of the Philistines. Okay, I gave you a hint. What's missing here in Judges chapter 13? Throughout Judges, Israel has sinned against God and forsaken Him continually and repeatedly. And then God brings judgment upon Israel to cause them to return to Him. And then they almost always cry out in misery and anguish to God for deliverance. But here, there is no cry for deliverance. They never cry out to God for deliverance in Judges 13. It's not an accident that the author of the Scripture left this out. The pattern has been too consistent. There is no cry. They've been under the domination of the Philistines for 40 years, and yet there is no cry from Israel. Well, it seems that after more than two centuries of repeated idolatry, after repeatedly going after the false gods of the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Moabites and on and on it goes, Israel has become accustomed to and even comfortable with and very much assimilated to the culture of the Philistine pagans and the unbelievers living around them and among them. In fact, at this time in Israel's history, this is the Philistine way. Oh, the Philistines will grow more antagonistic and combative as time goes on and their power grows, but for now, they have a more subtle approach to their domination of Israel. While other nations that surrounded Israel made a frontal assault and attacked Israel directly, the Philistines in this day were more insidious and ingenious. They lived among the Israelites. Their sons and daughters married the Philistine sons and daughters. They did business together. They integrated with them, contrary to what God had told them to do when they entered the promised land. And while there is no cry, while the Israelites have done nothing to even approach God to rescue them, while they have grown comfortable in their sin and their compromise, God is reaching out to save them. God is not going to leave them alone in their sinful, rebellious condition. God is not content to let them be adrift in their affliction and sin, but instead, He is raising up a Savior. The end of verse 5 is the key phrase that will guide all our consideration of Samson over the next three weeks. Look at the end of verse 5 again with me. He, that is Samson, shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson will begin to save Israel. Now, he will not complete the task. As a matter of fact, Samson's efforts to save Israel will be a solo effort. Nobody will help him. None of the Israelites will come alongside. As a matter of fact, they will oppose him, as we will see in chapter 15. But in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of Judges, God will jumpstart the process of saving Israel. The saving of Israel from the Philistines will come ultimately through King David when he defeats the Philistine giant Goliath and will continue beyond that, even extending to Jesus Christ, the one the angel says will save his people from their sins. How great is God's grace in raising up Samson? Every other judge in the book of Judges 
God takes off the shelf. In other words, God uses an already walking, talking member of the human race when God chooses to use them to save Israel. But not Samson. With Samson, God starts from scratch. God's purpose and plan for the judge Samson is announced to Manoah and his wife before Samson is even a twinkle in Manoah's eye. Before Samson is even conceived, God is purposing and planning to raise him up. God puts his grace and sovereignty on display in this. His purposes and plans will be carried out. His salvation of His people will happen. It will take place. He raises up Samson from no place, from nowhere. The words of David regarding God's sovereignty over the conception, birth, life, and death of men from Psalm 139 are as true of Samson as they are of David and as they are of each one of us. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is sovereign over life. He is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over conception and that little baby growing in the mother's womb and over birth and over the days of our lives. And he's making that point to the Israelites in the midst of their trials and troubles. And he's making the point to us that as dark and as bad as things might look at times, as much as we might be disappointed in the world around us, He's in control. He has a plan. There are no surprises to him. He is working, even when we don't see it. One more thing I want to bring to your attention about Psalm 139. A little Old Testament uh, seminar here for a minute. David starts by addressing his prayer in Psalm 139. And that's what it is. It's a prayer. David addresses it in verse 1 to the Lord. If you look at your English translations, and I want you to look at chapter 13, verse 1 of of Judges here. Um, Look at your English translations. You'll see the word capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Okay. Interesting little word. That word is actually a translation of the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Judges 13.1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's that word. So the Lord, there's that word again, gave them into the hand of the Philistines. That word Lord is, as I said, a translation of God's covenant name in the Old Testament. And the consonants in Hebrew are Y-H-W-H. With Yahweh being about the closest, we'll probably get with a pronunciation. That name was explained in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It's shorthand for I am who I am. Or even better, I will be what I will be. What God is stressing with His name is His presence. And Yahweh captures and summarizes that thought 
For He is the God who will be present. Yahweh means the God who is present. Now, I don't expect to replace the Lord, the, replace the Lord in the vocabulary that you use or in your Bible. But Yahweh is a personal name for God, while the Lord is a title. Let me explain a different way. Wife is my spouse's title. But I rarely call her that. I see you're getting the point. Her personal name is Denise. In a similar way, I prefer when I see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in my Old Testament to think and say Yahweh. And that's what I do. Because there's a personal warmth in the meaning of that word that a title does not convey. So here in Judges 13, it's the personal and present God. It is Yahweh. It is the Lord who formed inward parts in Psalm 139. It is the Lord in Psalm 139 who knit you together in your mother's womb and saw you your unformed substance and who wrote down the days that were formed for you before there was one of them. So too, it is the personal and present God. It is Yahweh. It is the Lord whose thoughts brought Samson into existence, conceived him in a barren woman's womb, knit him together there, and planned and purposed that Samson would, as God's judge in Israel, begin to save them from the Philistines. It really blows your mind when you start to think of God in that personal way. And that He he personally is doing this. He's not just some transcendent God. No, He's personally doing this. It's that important. It's that close to Him. Helps me understand when Isaiah the prophet says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, and God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. In light of this great salvation God provides, think about Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. How big is God's love for us? He chose us before the foundations of the world. How big is God's love for His people Israel? He's bringing Samson from before conception in his purpose and plan to save his people Israel. Well, how significant is this thing God is doing? How special is this Samson? Two times in Judges 13. In verses 3 and verse 5, the angel of the Lord repeats the phrase to Manoah's wife, You shall conceive and bear a son. Where have you heard that familiar phrase before? Well, it's in the nativity story. The story about Jesus' incarnation. 
In Luke 1, verse 31, the angel Gabriel told Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. In Matthew 1, 23, an angel tells Joseph, who's considering divorcing Mary because she's pregnant and it's not his, the angel tells Joseph that the baby growing inside Mary was of the Holy Spirit and is the one foretold in Isaiah 7.14, which says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. This is how a Savior is announced. Now, don't get me wrong. As we will see over the next two Sundays, Samson is no Jesus. Not in the least. Far from it. But Samson, despite all his faults, his failings, his many sins is used by God in a special way. God is gracious to Samson and to Israel through Samson. God uses Samson the sinner to bring salvation to Israel even through Samson's death. Jump down to Judges 13, verse 6 with me. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, And his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Two more things to note before we leave these truth-packed seven verses. First, the name of Manoah's wife and Samson's mother is never revealed. And she stands in a long line of women in the Bible who were barren. Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel all come to mind. Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist, comes to mind in the New Testament. The Lord often seems to begin right here when He does His work. He begins where hopelessness exists, where obscurity exists where no human effort or ability can save the day, out of the exceptional difficulties and humility of this situation, out of what humanly speaking looks like total obscurity and hopelessness, God brings forth a Savior. And isn't it interesting that in the midst of all this apostasy going on in Israel, all this rebellion and all this sin, God picks out ordinary Manoah and his wife, whom he never names, to use to bring salvation, to start to save the Philistines. Start to save the Israelites, rather, from the Philistines. He uses normal, ordinary, everyday, seemingly inconsequential people to do His work. Second thing I want to point out here in this passage, three times in Judges 13, we are told Samson is to be set apart as a Nazarite from birth. Nazarites are talked about in Numbers chapter 6. Nazarites were to be specially dedicated for God's service. Usually only for a time, but in Samson's case, from his birth to his death, he is dedicated to God's service. He was to reflect this in his life. How? By never drinking wine or strong drink, 
by eating nothing unclean, by never cutting his hair, and by never touching a dead body. That brings us to point number two. Verses 8 to 14 of Judges 13. God listens to the prayers of his children. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 8 of Judges 13. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. Neither let her drink wine or strong drink and eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Well, at this point, neither Manoah or his wife recognize the true nature of the visitor that has come. They know there's something special about him because Manoah calls him a man of God in his prayer. A man of God in the Bible is a term for someone who speaks for God. In the Old Testament, that would be a prophet, and that is likely what Manoah thinks is going on here. More important here than the recounting of the first visit this man had with Manoah's wife is an often overlooked detail. The fact that the Lord answered Manoah's prayer. Manoah prayed to the Lord in verse 8, and in verse 9 we are told God listened to the voice of Manoah. Don't miss this important truth. God listens to prayer. God hears and answers prayer. Childless and insignificant and ordinary Manoah prayed, and God responded. God answered. The answer came from the angel of God, from the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord doesn't show up very often in the Scriptures. The pre-incarnate Christ in the form of the angel of the Lord is a rare occurrence. Matter of fact, the only cases where the angel of the Lord occurs as a part of a, a birth announcement is to Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis 18 to announce the birth of their son Isaac. A miraculous birth that happens in Abraham and Sarah's old age. The other instance is the announcement to Elizabeth of the birth of John the Baptist. These are, these are rare occasions, but God listening to prayer is not a rare occasion. We have the privilege to enter the very throne room and our personal Lord listens as He does with Manoah. The Lord loves His people and so He listens to them when they talk with Him. He is really with them. He is comforting them. He is reassuring them. Could you imagine how Manoah and his wife might have felt in hearing this announcement that they're going to have a son and he's going to begin to save Israel? 
I don't think they can grasp that at this point. So Manoah wants more information. And God not only answers in prayer, God personally shows up. Point three, the splendor of God revealed in verses 15 to 25. Well, the angel of the Lord seems to have finished his message for Manoah in verse 14. But Manoah doesn't seem ready to let him go just yet. He wants him to stay for dinner. But his potential guest has another use for the animal Manoah wants to serve for dinner. It's not time for dinner. No, it's time for worship. As you will see, Manoah gets to do much more than thank the Lord before dinner. Look at verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. I like that. If you detain me, I will not eat your goat. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Notice he never tells him his name. Verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flames went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flames of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So in verse 20, they fall on their faces to the ground. By the way, a very common occurrence in the Bible when confronted with God himself. Followed in verse 21 by recognizing this truly was the Lord God present with them. The pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, is with them. And then in verse 22, appropriately, fear grips them both. And give Manoah some credit here. He's got pretty good theology. He understands, according to Exodus 33, that if you see the face of God, you're going to die. But the appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ is a this angel of the Lord is a gracious accommodation to Manoah and his wife. And the miraculous transport of the angel of the Lord to heaven in the flame of Manoah's altar confirms who this really is for him and his wife. I mentioned the angel of the Lord also refuses to give his name but says it is wonderful. Indicating his name is too wonderful for Manoah to fully grasp. Such knowledge of God is too wonderful. It is too high. We cannot attain it. The words of Psalm 139 make that clear. Manoah rightly perceives that he has truly seen God and that he will die. But Manoah has a wise woman for a wife. Look at verse 23. But his wife said to him, 
If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtal. Take note before we conclude the patience and deliberate pace of our God. We often want God to move in a matter of hours or days. When did God call Samson to start to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines? Well, at least 20 years before he actually starts actually doing it. See, our God often works not in scales of days or weeks, but in terms of months and years and decades and centuries. Don't think just because you haven't seen anything change, he's not working. He is working. He is moving. He is patient. That's why verse 25 says, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Manoah is becoming a man, or not Manoah, Samson's becoming a man, and God is going to use him. In conclusion, the Lord, Yahweh, raises up judges to save Israel, if only for a short time, if only temporarily. In doing so, he gives us a clear view of his steadfast and faithful love, along with his determination to keep his promises, and also shows us in doing so his gracious character. He lets us see a shadow of the grace that was to come. The grace that would come on a day when a virgin would conceive and bear a son. The grace that would come when they would call his name Jesus and he would save his people from their sins. And remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent Christ when we were opposed to Him, when we were suppressing the truth about God, Christ died for us. Even when we rejected Him, when we disobeyed Him, when we give half-hearted devotion to Him. Don't forget, as believers in Christ, we have been chosen in Him. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that we might have eternal life. We don't deserve it any more than Israel did. I conclude by reading Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. What incredible grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
May we delight and revel in the salvation that you bring. May we delight in you and worship you. Father, give us eyes to see and to marvel and to be amazed at your salvation. At your mercy and your grace for your people. We pray, Lord, that you would receive our praise. And that we would receive your word this morning. And that your word would stir our praise for you. That we would praise you because of the great salvation and because of the great God that you are. May we never tire of that. May we never tire of seeing your sovereign hand graciously providing for your people and for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.